Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'd like to invite you to take your seats. My name is Kathleen McLean. I'm a programmer here at the Art Gallery of Ontario's Department of Public Programming and Learning. And we welcome you here, acknowledging that we're gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. Uh, it's great to see so many of you here for tonight's talk by Sandra Miggs with special guest Christopher Butterfield. To get things started, I'd like to invite the AGO's Michael and Sonia Kerner Director, Stefan Yost. Thank you very much. Again, I'm Stefan. We'll keep these my comments quite brief because I want to get to the main event. Um, this is, of course, the celebration of the Iskwitz Prize at the AGO. Um, the Sandra Meggs has created an extraordinary exhibition. It's really lovely. Um, it's joyous. It's colorful. It's complex. It's interesting. And it sounds amazing as well. So I want to thank Sandra and um, her collaboration with the composer Christopher Butterfield. Um, I particularly want to thank also uh, Adelina Blas, who's our curator here of contemporary art, or one of three of our modern and contemporary curators. Obviously, exhibitions are always a partnership um, between artists and curators and interpretive planners as well. Um, and we've been awarding the Iskiewicz Prize, or the Iskiewicz Foundation has been awarding it since 1986. Sandra is the 30th recipient. And when you look at who has won the Iskiewicz Prize, it's, it's um, a pretty impressive group. Since 2007, in 2007, we, the Iskiewicz Prize and the AGO kind of joined forces to raise awareness. And um, the prize comes with a $50,000 cash prize to the artists. And I'm bringing this up right before Art Toronto because the reality is, is artists need people to buy works of art. Art Toronto is a great place to buy works of art. So um, the AGO buys works, but I think it's really important to, to support um, artists that you love. Um, I'm going to welcome to the stage um, Tom Bjornesson, the president of the Squits Foundation. several days, flying by day and sketching by night. It was from this northern experience that he developed his signature style, a jubilant and colorful celebration of the northern Canadian landscape. The impetus for the prize was Gershon's own grateful disbelief when he was awarded his travel grant, and the boost it gave to him gave to his painting at a time when he felt that his career was in a lull. 
Gershon ultimately had a successful career that generated profitable sales. He lived modestly, and because of the Holocaust, had no surviving family. His solution was to establish and to generously endow a foundation to support artists such just as the Canada Council had supported him. As Stefan mentioned, the foundation was formed in 1986, and every year since then, it has awarded a prize initially of $25,000 and now $50,000. The winner is chosen by a jury composed mainly of professionals, curators, critics, artists, and even museum directors. The fact that artists cannot apply or be nominated for the prize means that it is tax-free in their hands. The reaction of artists on what the prize has meant to them in their artistic future have often been moving. One of my favorites is that of the late Arnold Maggs, who said, Gershon Itzkowitz saved my ass. I had just won use of the Canada Council studio in Paris, and I was sitting in my studio, and I was broke, and I didn't know quite what to do next, and I got this message that Nancy Hushin had called me, and I thought, that's funny, why would she be calling me? And then she managed to contact me and tell me I had been chosen to receive the Itzkowitz Prize, and I couldn't believe my ears. And with Ajay egging me on, I went out and photographed 300 Paris hotel signs. It was the most exciting time for me, and the prize was most helpful, and I am forever grateful. It was like a care package from heaven. I truly love the guy. As um, Stefan also mentioned, the foundation entered into a partnership with the AGO in, in 2006, and the prize was renamed the Gershon Itzkowitz Prize of the AGO. By the reason of that partnership, each winner is given the opportunity to have a solo exhibition at the gallery, and that is why we are here tonight to celebrate and to congratulate Sandra Meggs, the winner of the year 2015 award, and the creator along with Christopher Butterfield of the awesome exhibition that you will see later this evening. also have the honor of introducing Sandra, which I found to be a somewhat daunting task to, to word. And I found myself on the internet where there was a lot of fascinating information and material about her. But I think the very best piece that I came upon is the front page of her website. It reads as follows, and I promised I would read this slowly. For over 35 years, Sandra Meggs has created vivid, immersive, and enigmatic paintings that combine complex narratives with comic elements. She derives the content of her work from her own personal experiences and develops these to create visual metaphors relating to the psyche. Through her work, Meggs wants the viewer to, to feel richly engaged, jubilant, and most of all, transported to an imaginary universe.
Mags is dedicated to painting and to the possibilities of enchantment the painting presents through color and form. She believes that the very authenticity of one's experience offers proof that what is imagined when looking at a painting is as real as anything else that one could experience in the world. Please join me in welcoming Sandra to the stage. to celebrate the work, Room for Mystics. I want to begin before I launch into my little talk to express from the bottom of my heart my deep thanks to the Gershon Itzkovitz Foundation. And I do believe that Mr. Itzkovitz is in spirit hanging out now in the Room for Mystics. I also want to thank the AGO. The AGO was a complete champion of the work from start to finish. Adelina Vlas met with Christopher and I and we'd launch all these wild ideas and she was on board right away. The um, sound that you might have noticed as you were entering uh, was live recordings from the Voyager spaceship of matter in outer space. And it was an inspiration for later work, which I will show you. This is a work from 1972, my first year at the Rhode Island School of Design. So I want to start with a generalization really about painting, which is that it's very conventional and it, it, it entails color most 95% of the time illusionistic space, whether it's an abstraction or a figurative painting, I don't really know what the difference is. There's always some sort of play with space. Uh, of course, composition and a two-dimensional surface. But throughout history, painting painters have always considered installation as um, part of their work. The Giotto uh, frescoes in the Italian chapel, uh, the Masaccio with its exaggerated perspective in the cathedral lit by candles, which places the viewer at the feet of Christ in the crypt with Christ in using the cathedral as the architecture. Monet painted a garden of water lilies for a space that he designed. 
And Rothko painted abstractions that became a chapel. In these works, lighting, sound, entrances, architectural scale were all very considered. And so I also try to capitalize on paintings conventions and also the museumological context to transform the work from an everyday experience to a highly charged experience. I've also used narrative from time to time uh, throughout my works to project the imagination into the portrayals of the paintings, whether they're abstract or figurative. I think that life's bizarre experiences can reveal universal conditions, and most of the time my works are coming from uh, very personal experiences. In 2000, I went to Boat Basin Farm, a historic garden in Clackwood Sound, British Columbia, old growth cedars. I spent a week there with a group of artists in retreat doing plein air paintings out in the landscape with all the mosquitoes wearing mosquito netting and very intense uh, experience. The three acre garden there is set in the middle of an old growth uh, cedar forest which is clearly under threat from clear cut logging uh, which we also ventured out into uh, as a group. And um, the garden itself was very, very rich with um, history, uh, evocative imagery all around, and many, many tales were told about Kugrani, who originated the garden. So while there, I began in my head to develop the site as a kind of psyche, a model of the psyche. And I often um, will use a metaphor or a model to construct a work, and that kind of gets me going into it. So in this case, I was thinking of the outer body, consciousness, the subconscious, and then enlightenment in terms of um, the geography of the place. So one would arrive at Boat Basin Farm in a boat, it was the only way to arrive. And so you would trek, wade through the water up to the beach. And I um, fathomed that as creation. And you would traverse these uh, raised, very old cedar plank trails up to the gate to the garden. And then you would go through the gate which I conceived of as birth, that you were entering the world, which was the garden. And in the garden, there were many, many meandering pathways where you could easily get lost. And I envisioned this as innocence and uh, childhood. And then finally, at the back of the garden, there was a very secret gate that, that not many people knew about. And this was a pathway leading to the mountaintop where there was a pure lake where the visitors got their drinking water from. And I envisioned this as um, the purity of the soul. So the result of all that um, experience was this work, The Newborn, that you see here, which is um, how I had 
painted the gallery brown like earth and applied to the walls a faint ghost-like image of a previous exhibition, which you see in the little um, darker highlighted areas of the wall. And then there's a series of panels, 24 inch by 24 inch oil on panel. Each panel has a internal light source and a picture lamp and then a little text card. So they related in narrative sequence the story of a little girl. So here she's come to a giant tree. It's dark. She's very scared and she asked the tree if she could sleep inside for the night. And she goes inside and she finds a bed and a brown coat. And she puts on the brown coat, wraps the belt tightly around her waist and sleeps very comfortably in the bed. The paintings were full of kind of little exquisite details that um, kind of drew the viewer in to uh, want to discover the text card in the, the text. This was um, the robbers and the, the chains. And the robbers captured the little girl and tied her up in chains to fatten her up. And she was um, befriended by a giant bear who came to her at night. But there was also an earthquake the same night, which swallowed up the robber family conveniently. And the bear could fly, so he put her on his pungent smelling back and um, took her off to, to rescue her. This is the um, garden secret gate. And the glowing um, orb you see in the middle is a light coming out of the ground where the roots of the flowers are. And this little image is the tiny little secret gate at the back. And near the end, she finds a satin bonnet, and she puts it on her head and falls asleep. And a little boy comes down and hovers over her and sees her sleeping. So um, in 2003, I began a new series uh, that kind of came three years sequentially. It began with these um, oil on panel, highly built up uh, with a gessoed surface to form the images. So the paintings were white for uh, 20 layers or so, and then finally they were colored. And these all involved encounters between a child and a kind of monster-like witch or ghost or scarecrow. So this was how the, this series began. And then it turned into Ride, where the images became a little more complex with figures. This is boy kissing girl with rabbit on head. And um, they were, they were viv vividly colored. Uh, this is girl kissing ducks. I guess I was into kissing then. And um, I wanted to show you the formation of the work, so I put these little sketches in. This is actually just a little sketch. It's about um, this big. And that's how the work was made from that. And I began embedding um, images inside the gesso, which is another reason I put these little sketches in, because it's really hard to see the um, 
the hidden images are in the white negative space. And um, there's two of these paintings upstairs in the little room off the room for mystics that Adelina has curated. Uh, that room also has a painting by Shirley Widazalo and a work by Kara Hamilton. Kara, Kara Hamilton. And so you can explore these negative spaces in, in the, those two real paintings. They're much easier to see in person. Um, so this is a beautiful artwork that my daughter Evelyn made uh, when she was about three. Um, and I saved it for, uh, I still have it. But it, this was 2007, so I had saved it for about 15 years. And um, I was very inspired by how fresh and alive it is and how kind of joyous it is. And I thought, I wish I had done that. So um, that led to a piece called The Foldheads. And The Foldheads was a cast of characters. Each character was a performer, and their names were Ever So, Gotta Go, Hey Yo, Pleasure's Mine, Feelin' Fine, Love You So, Feelin' Low, with Mr. Whistler. And this was the installation of that work. And you can definitely see a resemblance, I think, between this one and my daughter's work. Um, so I set myself up um, a kind of a rule for these paintings, which was that um, I would sit and contemplate the form. I had the forms all built for me, and they were all prepared. My rule was I could make a gesture on them once with one color and no work after that. So I mean, my day's work like took me about five minutes. Um, and um, then I added always some fabric of various sorts. And they, are, they really are characters. Uh, this is with Mr. Whistler. I, I love Mr. Whistler. Um, I'm jumping now to 2007 and scenes for my affection because this was a precursor to um, a whole uh, next preoccupation of mine, um, which you'll see as I as I go forward. So, um, scenes for my affection uses a technique that embeds a slippage between form and content really within the surface of the painting using raw monochromatic color. So you can see um, the image slipping away and then kind of revealing itself. The content I think is precognitive in that no dominant image comes at once. It's sort of um, discovered. And then they've also got all these things sticking out of them. So um, lines 
depicting interior scenes skim through the optic experience of color. As each scene unfolds, the space is both ephemeral and unyielding. The surfaces of the fields are interrupted with glass balls, plastic tubing, and mylar colored films jut out as frames. Ultimately, these intimately scaled paintings address affection as an act of viewing. The Little Rabbit Family. So using that, what I discovered, how to embed an image in a painting by um, doing a line drawing and then painting around the line, I um, took some time away and then um, became very interested in um, architecture, architectural, uh, particular architectural theory. And I was kind of taking myself back to an experience that I had back at that boat basin farm in Clackwood Sound in 2000. I actually had an out-of-body experience, having had very little sleep because there were mice running through the bed and there were cats scat all over the place and I don't know, it was, and mosquitoes. I mean, it was hard to sleep. So um, I was sleep deprived, plus I think I'd done a fair bit of drinking. And um, I had a very intense experience by myself. Everybody was off and I decided just to go skinny dipping. It was a beautiful hot summer day looking up at the um, sky and the ocean. And I lay alone, flattened out on the ocean. And I felt myself suddenly being pulled in a big whoosh up into the universe, and I could really see myself down there. Um, it was as if my cellular structure melded with the macro and microcosmos. So um, I began really wondering about this. Is it real or is it sort of, just as I said, sleep-deprived hallucination? And I came across a book by Douglas Hofstadter called I Am a Strange Loop. And um, he kind of put the experience into words for me. And it, it got me started on a way to see art as a model for this kind of loop that one is involved in when imagination takes hold. And I also was um, reading a parallel book at the time uh, by, um, Vincent Scully Jr., who's an architectural historian, and um, he's really knowledgeable about pre-modernism, and he's very interested in buildings like this that you see here, which is, uh, it's called stick and shingle style architecture. And um, it's about the way the space is extremely integrated into daily life, so the house is always completely structured around the parlor and the, the stairway which leads up in a kind of spiral to the um, private rooms of, of the, the household. And I had um, the opportunity to go to Newport, Rhode Island. I looked up, actually, this exact mansion is one that I spent a lot of time in, and it was so exciting to go for real to something you saw in a book. Um, 
So I spent many hours in various mansions in Newport, and I would sit on a little three-legged stool very low to the floor, and usually relative to the main stairway in the mansion. And I would really feel myself being pulled into the space as if I were part of the architecture. I think that intense experience of sitting and drawing and just being intensely aware um, really made me feel I was in the universe. The house I was in was the universe. And it was kind of a psychedelic experience for me in a weird way. And my brain matter kind of started giving way to the grand geometry of the architectural space. And so the result of that um, drawing extravaganza was a series of paintings called Strange Loop. And I see the paintings as being um, passive until the viewer turns them on by looking at them. So in the sense of them having beings dwelling within them, they're full of faces and gestures. And in this case, you see a stairway that this painting is um, 13 feet high by uh, nine or 10 feet wide, I believe. And it's, um, it's big. So you can really be pulled into the architecture. And then at the bottom of the stairway, there's a vortex of spinning um, heads going down into possibly um, another universe. And I sort of really thought about um, the canvas that speaks when it's spoken to and the viewer activating the canvas and then um, the canvas also activating the viewer. And this one was called System Watch. So always on the left side of this painting, there were always um, happy faces. And on the right side of the painting, there were always um, sad faces. And they come together again in that vortex in the middle of the space, which kind of um, I've repeated in many works since then. Yeah, this painting, I think it's um, 18 feet wide or something like that. And this just shows the process. Um, in, I'm going to talk now about the basement panoramas. So um, in around 2010, I think, my husband Paul and I bought this house together in Victoria. And Paul lived in Seattle, but he was planning to retire. He owned a bar in, in Seattle, and he was planning to retire up to, to Victoria. And we were going to live in this house together. But very, very sadly, um, he passed away in January 2011 from cancer. And I spent a year <coughs> uh, grieving, having had no idea I, I, what was involved with that. Um, and during that process of grief, I became really in love with my crawl space under that house. So um, if you look in this, oh, you can't see it. It's obscured by the mailbox. But this is the door 
to the crawl space. And the house itself is built in 1922 on a rock. And many houses in Victoria are actually like that. And um, it has all of the ancient um, technology. It has the coal furnace and the original electrical wiring. I mean, not that they're, they're operating, but all the signs and structures are there. And um, I really just fell in love with it as a model for a system of dying and a system of departing and whatever happens after that. So um, I did this drawing from panorama photographs of the space. And the result of this drawing was this painting called Red 3011 Jackson Mortality. Out of that um, discovery of my own basement, I took a little tour around and went to um, other basement spaces and did uh, another three of these panoramas. Um, this one was called Blue, um, 100 Mountain Rest, uh, Breath. And this was a stage where I took lessons on breathing and it really brought me back to life again. And um, this one was about that kind of extreme restless state that one can feel when kind of really detached from the world and, um, and a kind of insomnia. And so this was electric blue with um, electric, like lemon yellow with electric blue uh, linear interior and many, a few uh, hidden figures down there. So they're just kind of slumping away doing various things at night. Um, and the fourth of these works was a final transformation, which I felt really amazed um, at the outcome of what happened at the end of this year I took. So um, in this painting, again, half on the left side are embedded in the image, all words for birth. And then in the right side are all words for death. And then they come together again in the middle in a, in a vortex. Um, so this is All to All. And this was just two years ago that I made All to All. And when this exhibition was up was when um, Tom called me with news of this prize, and I absolutely couldn't believe it. Um, because All to All was alive with vibration, and I somehow felt that that vi vibration had brought um, this incredible gift to me. Um, and I do have a minute and a half video that explains this work better than I could, so I'm going to ask Zoe to Put that video on, please. Is it on? 
don't really, hello, are you there? Oh, there it goes, okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. I'll go back to the slideshow now. So, um, I took my 24-inch chow gong into the gallery, as you saw, and every day around lunchtime, I would play the gong for about 15 minutes. And it's an extraordinary physical experience. And it really, um, permeated the being of people there and the artworks themselves. Um, and also you'll see the bones and golden robes were the inspiration for the wall banners in Room for Mystics. And also the gong was, um, led me to consider sound and led me to a uh, discussion with Christopher Butterfield for, Rooms for Room for Mystics. Um, before I go on a bit, uh, I wanted to, um, yeah, these are um, images of our working process. And um, yeah, sorry, I'm just, I can't quite, do figure out what I'm doing next. Um, <laughs> um, I did 15 of the paintings in 2016 and 15 of the paintings in 2017. Christopher and I started working together in 2016. Um, 15 of the paintings have already been exhibited at the Winchester Gallery and the next 15 are here for the first time. Well, you'll see them in a very different form. And I also wanted to mention uh, that I have an opening tomorrow night at the Susan Hobbs Gallery 
which is uh, this piece called The Glass Ticker. But um, most importantly, I would like to bring Christopher Butterfield up to um, talk a little bit about um, his work. Christopher is a dear friend. We met in 1980, I think, when we were both living in Toronto. And I think I remember meeting him at some kind of protest group or another. And um, then we became colleagues at the University of Victoria. And we've actually team taught some classes, which makes teaching really fun and exciting when you can teach with Christopher. Please come up, Christopher. Thank you. I'm told to be brief. Um, hi, I'm Christopher. Um, uh, this might be a little disjointed, but I'll get in the swing of things. And Sandra's left me my watch, so I can time myself. Um, so two things. A couple of weeks ago, uh, a British-Lithuanian cellist named Anton Lukashevice visited Victoria. I hadn't met him before. Um, the first thing he said to me as I was driving him up Mount Talmy to show him the view, uh, he said, are you religious? And um, I, I hedged um, and I got through that one. Um, and the next question he, said, he asked me was, um, what, what kind of music do you write? And I said, I don't know because I don't. Um, uh, this, after, this morning, um, one of the uh, preparators, one of the installers, said to me as we were kind of, the show had come up and the sound was going, he said, I said, what, what, do, you, what do you think? And I said, uh, he said, um, I'm not quite sure what the show is. And I said, that makes me very happy um, because I, uh, when someone isn't sure what something is. And there's an old line, I think, that Mallarmé uh, used a long time ago. He said, uh, something like presque quelque chose, uh, presque rien, uh, almost like art. So almost, perhaps something, perhaps nothing, almost like art. And I, I think that's always what I've liked to be part of. Uh, not saying that Sandra isn't making art, she most demonstrably is. It's when I get involved that things might get a little shaky. Um, collaboration uh, is a most wonderful thing. Um, most rewarding thing, uh, particularly when it has time to unfold and develop. Um, this isn't the first time Sandra and I have worked together. She's um, been kind enough to ask me to do things with her before and, and kind of comment and, and consult on things that she's um, done with sound. And I've also asked her to be part of things as, as well, and she's made illustrations for things that I've done. Um, so when she originally approached me a couple of years ago about uh, creating sound for Room for Mystics, um, I was, of course, immediately intrigued. I won't go through the various points of arrival and departure uh, in sort of getting to where we are now, but suffice it to say that we nixed little loudspeakers on walls, which I don't like, um, uh, brass bands walking in the park outside, which would cost a lot of money, um, and so ended up with... Um, uh, hang on, I need my other glasses. Um, 
uh, a, a homemade array of 17 loudspeakers uh, powered by um, eight rather uh, lovely um, single-ended triode amplifiers. Um, they glow in the dark. And a brass trio, the Voxeris trio, uh, they'll be playing for you tonight. Um, I don't think they knew quite what they were getting into when they signed on. Ooh, somebody's waving at me at the back. There they are. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, they're not dressed up yet, but they will be. Um, and they'll play, uh, you'll hear them at 7 o'clock tonight, and they'll play every day, uh, Tuesday through Saturday, at 11.30 in the morning. And if you get here at 11.45, you'll have missed them, so you'll have to come the next day. Right? Very important. Um, the structure of the piece is, is incredibly simple. Um, it's, it's simply drawn from nature. Um, is Rick Sachs here? No, he, he might not have made it in time. Do you, um, you all remember those tubes that you whirl around your head and they go <whistles> Yeah, do I see happy smiles of yeah, recognition? Yeah. Um, those, I think you'll all remember, are the, the tones of the harmonic series um, from a fundamental and that go up and rise, um, which is a natural phenomenon. It occurs throughout this world that we know. It occurs in Antarctica. It occurs in uh, South America, in North America, in Australasia. It, in, it's simply part of nature. Um, and in, in columns of air, in vibrating strings, um, at the Montreal Metro. Yeah, next time you're in the Metro, and the doors shut and the train moves off. The sound in Room for Mystics is simply um, based on the partials of, in the harmonic series. Um, they consist, they combine in different proportions to always give a different color to the lowest pitch that it's based on. It's always the same low pitch, which is actually um, more or less the resonant frequency of the gallery itself. So it worked out to sort of be 46.25 hertz, which is more or less an F sharp under the conventions of, um, I mean, when we call pitches by name, it's a very subjective measurement, but it's more or less an F sharp. Um, so what I like to think that we ended up with is, is colored air. Um, because the, the sound is continuous in the room, and if you like, it's an extension of the paintings into sound. Um, and it's a very simple and, and rather foolish analogy, not foolish, but a very straightforward analogy, just as you uh, can split white light uh, into the colors of the rainbow through a prism, um, so also you can break a frequency, a single frequency, into these partials, and that's what gives sound its color. So it's endlessly changing. It's quite slow. You have to slow yourself down to listen to it and to hear sort of everything that's going on. But, but think of it as, as colored air. Um, so I would like to thank curator Adeline Vlas for somehow allowing me to do what I did, um, and Sarah Yaffe, the project manager and supervisor, who was always very quick to respond to all my sometimes unreasonable comments and demands. Um, the whole installation crew, who did so beautifully, and you'll see it. Uh, director Stefan Jost, who again has allowed me to be part of this and for supporting our combined project. And mostly, I have to thank Sandra, 
sorry, from the bottom of my heart for, um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, for, for inviting me to be part of, of what I think is, is a truly wonderful project because her imagination, and this is what makes me so excited to be part of this, her imagination is truly bottomless and endless. And I've learned an incredible amount from working with her over the years. Um, so I'm grateful to her for trusting me to be part of Room for Mystics. So thanks. Yeah, so before we all run up to see the exhibition, we do have a few minutes for questions. Sorry, I'd just like to say one more thing. Um, uh, I expected my uh, partner, uh, Mary Ellen, to be here today, and my son, Julian, who's uh, here in Toronto. My daughter, Claire, turned up as I was sitting at the back there from Victoria, so um, I'm a little flabbergasted still. Um, didn't, didn't expect her. Yeah. Welcome, Claire. All right, so if anyone has a question, just wave at me, and I'll be happy to bring the microphone to you. There's also a mic on the other side of the room. All right, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> oh, wait, got one in the back. When I was in the room earlier, I was curious about, um, I happened to put my ear closer to one of the speakers and noticed that it changes the sound from the sound that's in the room more to a single tone. And if those tones are meant to match the paintings that they're with at all. Did you hear that? Yeah. Um, Can you go to the... Sorry, I'll do it, yeah. There's, there's no relationship between uh, the tones that are coming out of the speakers by each loudspeaker. And sorry, if I can just digress for 30 seconds. Um, the, the tones were all, as I say, taken from the partials of that F sharp, and then they're combined using kind of chance operations in the array, if you like, the kind of structure that they have through the 17 loudspeakers. Um, and they keep changing, as you might have noticed. They just keep very gradually changing, and the color changes as the time kind of goes along. Um, uh, but there's no association, unless you wish to make one, between what's coming out of the loudspeaker at any given time and the painting that it's joined to. Is that enough? I think we have time for one more question. Oh, two more questions. You got. You have one. Yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you both, um, and uh, congratulations, uh, Sandra, fantastic. Congratulations both on the exhibition and, and the award. Um, I had, um, I was trying to phrase this as a question initially, but mostly just um, um, a remark um, to say initially that hearing your, hearing your talk is, was really wonderful because, um, sorry, I'm hearing my echo here, it's quite distracting. <laughs> but, um, but I think often you started your talk by describing um, painting as being something that's for a long time been tied to external architecture and structures and, and like a hybrid, a hybrid idea of painting, which is so great. Um, but it strikes me that so, much, so many painters that try to 
reach out uh, to other structures, to sculpture. It's often a very, very forced activity. It's a very kind of difficult, kind of incongruous thing. And it just seems so natural the way you, you've done this. And um, your paintings seem to really um, welcome their space uh, so well. And I, I wanted to congratulate you on that. Oh, it's fantastic. But so my question yeah. is just um, in relation to a little nugget that you dropped in your talk. I'd love to hear you describe a little bit more about um, affection as an act of viewing. It was such a lovely way to think oh, okay. about being a painter. And um, yeah, more on yeah, that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a nice question, thanks. Um, I've always been uh, really interested in that gap. So there's, there's the work of art, and then there's the viewer. And uh, it's kind of tragic because they don't meet. There's, there's a gap between them. And I'm really interested in affection and empathy and how it makes two beings one. And I wanted the, the painting being to be one with the viewer being. And um, I think um, cute little animals are very affectionate. And there were those in the, those little paintings. And, um, interior spaces too, which the paintings portrayed, I think are uh, comforting, and so that was kind of the reason for that. Thank you. Last question. Sandra, I'm, I'm curious as to um, the concept of the bones in golden robes. What was it that you saw in that that encouraged you to make it the basis for the multiple banners in this work? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the Bones and Golden Robes came following the basement panoramas, and they were um, really, really spiritual to me. And also, they had uh, sound makers in them in their original installation. They were part of the basement panoramas installation. And Christopher actually advised me on that sound. So I put... Um, clinking um, plastic ashtrays under the robes, and they carried a aluminum pie tin full of buckshot. I think both of those were Christopher's suggestion. And they would kind of lurch on this little stage, because they're robotic. And they would spin around. And it was a sound, but it was also a... Um, it was a ritual and a procession. And that's how um, the Rooms for Mystics, for me, was a, a space for not, not, I don't want to say ritual, but um, a meditation, a very um, quiet kind of place to be. So they, they, that, that yellow spiral from the robes went into the banners. I think that's a pretty roundabout non-answer, non but it's something anyway. <laughs> Sandra and Christopher, thank you so much for your thoughts tonight. The talk um, for all of you, thanks for coming. You have two options, really. Go upstairs to the fifth floor to see the exhibition, um, or downstairs to the main floor to join us for a drink and continue the celebration. Thanks, have a great night.